Father, now we come to more recent sacred history. And we pray your guidance. We, we pray that we would not be misled or make false assumptions or get confused. We pray you would help us to focus on the points of, of practical personal benefit and value and to seek to understand but never to falter over that which we don't. We just ask this favor now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're dealing with a time period approximately 100 years ago. Dr. John Harvey Kellogg. Um, <clears throat> I want to start off with one interesting quotation. Why is any of this important? Well, yeah, I've been a teacher for 20 years, okay? As religious teachers, we are under obligation to God to teach the students how to engage in medical missionary work. What does the word obligation mean? Responsibility. Responsibility. It's one of those things that if you don't, there are consequences. <laughs> okay? It's a requirement. Really? Medical missionary work. We're going to expand your concepts of medical missionary work. In order to do that, we're going to have to cover a quite a bit of history. So hang on. Here we go. Language comes and goes. God's thoughts, concepts, practices, they're, they're much more constant than that. Medical missionary work. We're going to go back to a time period when there was no such thing as medical missionary work in the church because we hadn't heard that phrase yet. Okay? There really was, but we weren't calling it that. The first time medical missionary shows up in the review was 1893. I'm sure Ellen White got that from Kellogg. Kellogg had heard the term because other churches were using that expression, but you know, it hadn't been an Adventist expression. First time it shows up in the testimonies is 1901. Okay? Before that time, we had this, Bene. Okay? Uh, anybody speak Spanish? No? No. Okay. Bueno, right? Everybody knows about tacos. Okay? Uh, <laughs> taco bueno, okay? It's, it's, bene is a Latin root word, okay? It just means good or, or well, okay? In English, we come up with words like benefit and beneficent and benevolent, okay? So, before we had medical missionary work, we had the benevolent work. That was a phrase that was used. This was a term used by Seventh-day Adventists from the late 1860s on to describe efforts to help people, especially the poor, the disadvantaged, or the sick, in practical, tangible ways. A synonym was Christian help work. Ellen White used that expression quite a bit. But even more than that, she simply made reference to Isaiah 58, right? Share your bread with the hungry, bring the poor to your house, clothe the naked. That's the beneficent work, okay? Or benevolent work. In 1868, we formed the Seventh-day Adventist Benevolent Association to foster benevolent work. Okay? This was largely in reaction to the failure of the church to provide for Hannah Moore. You may or may not remember Hannah Moore. You can read in Volume 1 and find the whole story. Hannah Moore was a Baptist. She was a missionary to Liberia, which is on the west coast of Africa, just above the equator. She'd been there for 20 years. She was an author. She was a teacher. She was a preacher. She was a, a practical nurse. She, was, she, was a, she had 20 years of, of all-rounded 
Advent, or not Advent, uh, uh, mission experience. She came back to the States on furlough in 1863 and bumped into an Adventist minister by the name of S.N. Haskell. Haskell gave her a copy of Andrew's book, The History of the Sabbath, a couple little tracks. She stuck them in a suitcase, took them back to Africa, gets around to reading them over and says, this is wonderful stuff. All my friends are going to want to hear about the Sabbath. She was wrong, of course. None of them wanted to hear about it, and they fired her. <laughs> and made her pay her own way back to the States. She lands in, in, in uh, New England, 1867. Um, maybe 1866, one or the other. Um, either late 66 or early 67. She lands in New England, spends a little bit of time there, couldn't find a job, didn't have any money. She was running out of money. She says, I'm going to go to Battle Creek. That's where God's people are. She goes to Battle Creek. She lands there with a little bit of money left, but this time she was sick. She was 58 years old, I think, something like that. She was, she was you know, a little older. It's, you know, 58 is not nearly as old as it used to be, but you know. Um, <laughs> but um, you know, she was a little bit older, right? And, 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 and her dresses were all 20 years out of date because she'd been wearing them in Africa for 20 years and didn't want to spend the money that could be used for something more productive. So she stayed at the sanitarium and was paying for a lodging there and hoping someone would give her a job, and nobody did. And she was hoping that someone might put her up in their house, and nobody did. And she was running out of money. So she wrote to a colleague, Baptist former missionary living in upstate Michigan, said, could I come live with you? He said, sure, Miss Moore, please. So she traveled to upstate Michigan, lived with this family, rather poor. Tried to teach the kids, but soon she was too sick. Her only room in the house was the upstairs attic. It was uninsulated. This is a Michigan winter. It was unheated except for a stovepipe that came up from the stove down below and leaked smoke into the upstairs room. By March of 1868, she was dead from tuberculosis. In this testimony, I speak freely of the case of Sister Hannah Moore, not from a willingness to grieve the Battle Creek Church, but from a sense of duty. I love that church, notwithstanding their faults. I know of no church that in acts of benevolence and general duty do so well. And that's about the scariest statement in the whole presentation today. <laughs> I present the frightful facts in this case to arouse our people everywhere to a sense of their duty. Not one in 20 of those who have a good standing with Seventh-day Adventists is living out the self-sacrificing principles of the Word of God. Self-sacrifice is real. Everything else is not. <laughs> okay? <laughs> Going on another place, Ellen White said, In the case of Sister Hannah Moore, I was shown that the neglect of her was the neglect of Jesus in her person. Had the Son of God come in the humble, unpretending manner in which he journeyed from place to place when he was upon earth, he would have met with no better reception. That's kind of spooky. <clears throat> so, benevolent war got started. By 1887, there were 37 Adventist city missions in operation. By 1888... Only 22 were reported. Now, I don't really think that means that 15 of them folded up in the course of a year. I think that it probably means that most all of them were, were rather small, humble operations, and they you know, didn't bother to write a letter that year, just to let the, you know, the folks back in Battle Creek know what they were doing. But this benevolent work was, you know, people were doing things. They were doing things of a humanitarian nature to help people for the simple reason that they needed help. Adventists were doing that. 
And then, and then, a little drum roll, please. Along came Dr. Kellogg, for both good and bad Seventh-day Adventist benevolent work would never be the same. I have all sorts of stories I would love to tell you about Dr. Kellogg, and I don't have time for any of them. <laughs> My apologies. Dr. Kellogg was intelligent. Oh, it's a great story for that one. <laughs> he was insecure. Lots of stories. He was independent. He was proud. He was so proud, in fact, that he got hurt. That's his wife. Uh, one of the bigger mistakes of his life. Seventh-day Baptist, never was an Adventist. He was generous. He raised 42 kids, adopted 18 of them. The rest of them were foster kids. He put 50 people through college, paid their way through college, medical school, because he was helpful. He was a generous guy. He was very decisive. He was sometimes very controlling. Goes along with being insecure. And he was converted. <laughs> isn't it great? Isn't it great that somebody like John Kellogg can be converted? Not his whole life. <laughs> After the meeting at Minneapolis, Dr. Kellogg was a converted man, and we all knew it. We could see the converting power of God working in his heart and life. I like that. Now, that comment's made 15 years later. <laughs> okay. The meeting at Minneapolis, of course. Dr. Bishop, any guesses what that was? <laughs> okay. Righteousness by faith. Jones and Wagner, the whole thing. That's the meeting Kellogg was converted at. Okay. While the believer is justified because of the merit of Christ, he is not free to work on righteousness. Faith works by love and purifies the soul. Faith buds and blossoms and bears a harvest of precious fruit. Where faith is, good works appear. The sick are visited. The poor are cared for. The fatherless and the widow are not neglected. The naked are clothed. The destitute are fed. That's what converted people do. John Kellogg was converted. So he started doing that. That's not so complicated. <laughs> okay. In October of 1890, Dr. Kellogg sought Ellen White's reaction to the idea of starting an orphanage. She wrote, Dear Brethren, while in Petoskey, I had some conversation with your physician-in-chief in regard to establishing a home for orphaned children at Battle Creek. I said that this was just what was needed among us as a people, that in enterprises of this kind, we were far behind other denominations. And so Dr. Kellogg started a little orphanage because they were little orphans. You gotta have a heart for kids. You know, if you can't drum up a little kindness for some poor kid, you're a hard-hearted, cruel. <laughs> Dr. Kellogg started an orphanage. It was a small beginning. Nowhere near enough to meet the need. He had all sorts of, you know, oh, we've got this, you know, three orphans over here, their parents died. Oh, we've got two orphans over here. In 1892, Mrs. Carolyn Haskell came as a guest to the sanitarium. She was impressed by what she saw. She asked Dr. Kellogg if there were any special needs towards which she might donate. He had no idea what she had in mind, so he suggested, well, they could always use another hospital bed. <laughs> she was thinking of something a little larger than that. Her husband, uh, Charles? No, Frederick. Frederick Haskell. Neither of these were Adventists, but Frederick Haskell had died recently. He was a wealthy businessman. He'd left her more money than she could possibly reasonably spend in the rest of her lifetime, and she knew that, and she wanted to leave some memorial for her husband. And so she did. Her interest eventually led to a $30,000 gift given as a memorial to her late husband, Frederick Haskell. Soon, approximately 100 children were, in, were being cared for by the orphanage. Now, if you have any doubt as to what inflation does to your money, 
Please note that this is what they built for $30,000. <laughs> it used to go farther than it does now, okay? <clears throat> That's the Haskell Home for Orphans outside of Battle Creek. And this was Frederick Haskell, not Stephen Haskell, okay? In 1889, Dr. Kellogg got a first-hand look at the work of the city missions. He later said, I never had much faith in God until I went down to the Jerry McCauley Mission in New York City and saw how the Lord could save drunkards. It's a wonderful thing to watch the Lord save a soul, isn't it? <laughs> you know? And when he snatches somebody from the bottom of the pit and pulls them up and puts them on their feet and turns them into a man in Christ Jesus, it's an incredible thing. And Kellogg saw that. He says, now I've got faith in God. <laughs> in the spring of 1893, the Chicago Branch Sanitarium and the Chicago Medical Mission were opened. In 1896, a large church was purchased and fitted up to become the working man's home. What would the working man's home be? What would we call that today? Homeless. It's a homeless shelter. It's exactly what he did. The services provided included basic medical care, English language classes, free baths, self-service laundry, limited employment opportunities, penny dinners, and 10-cent lodging. For the 15 years of the mission's operation, Dr. Kellogg tried to spend every other Sunday in Chicago. He really was honestly and sincerely interested in this. This was his baby. Now, <clears throat> we're going to go through some history as reflected in comments by Ellen White. You've got to follow this closely. Okay, just, just keep tracking with me and this will make sense. 1895, initial support. I am in full sympathy with the work that is being done in Chicago. I believe in helping along every line in which is possible help following the steps of Christ. Those who take hold of this Christian help work, who will consecrate themselves to God, will find that he will be a present help to them in every hour of need. Okay, full sympathy. 1897, two years later. The very work Dr. Kellogg has been managing is the kind of work the whole of our churches are bound to do under covenant relation to God. They are to love God supremely and their neighbor as themselves. Now, see that italics right there? I didn't add that. That's there. Okay? 1897 again. This work is the work that churches have left undone, and they cannot prosper until they have taken hold of this work in the cities, in highways, and in hedges. The angels of God will cooperate with human instrumentalities, and a religious system will be inaugurated to relieve the necessities of suffering human beings who are in physical, mental, and moral need. See that italics? I did not add that. Anybody ever heard of Adventist churches that are kind of dwindling down and dying? Hot tip on the screen, okay? <laughs> My brethren in America, in the place of questioning and criticizing Dr. Kellogg because, of the, because he is doing the class of work he is, notice, why were they questioning and criticizing? The class of work he was doing, okay? When you do your God-given service, you will be heart and soul engaged in doing the same kind of work, which will be of far more account in the sight of God than for so many to flock into Battle Creek where they become religious dwarfs because they do not do the work God has appointed them. Yeah, ouch. <laughs> Can you twist that knife? <laughs> you know, that's, that's what she said. 
1898, changing circumstances. Follow me closely. <clears throat> the question has been asked, did you not give Dr. Kellogg encouragement after he'd entered into this work? I answer, I did. For I had been instructed that a work of this character should be done by all our churches, that a deep interest should be taken in this very line of work, that according to the light which the Lord had been pleased to give me, this line of work should have been taken hold of with resolution by our ministers. Not, where am I? There we go. Not to create a large center in one place, but to establish the work in many cities. Okay? This is the key thing where Kellogg jumped the traces. Okay? She's still recommending the work, but not the way Kellogg was carrying on the work. For reasons that you'll see in a minute, Kellogg was doing the, is this not the great Chicago mission which I have built type of act, okay? You'll see one. <laughs> the work God pointed out for those in Battle Creek was for them to leave Battle Creek and work in places where there was nothing to represent the truth. Thus, plants would have been made in many places. God has not forsaken His people, but His people have forsaken Him. Those in Battle Creek should have worked for the ones who needed their help. Dr. Kellogg took up the work they did not do. The spirit of criticism shown to his work from the first has been very unjust and has made his work hard. The lack of sympathy his brethren have shown him has prepared the way for the work he has been doing in criticizing them. The Lord has no justification for any such work. I see you shaking your head. Do you recognize a, a theme that shows up anywhere else uh, as to you know, how someone's doing something for the Lord and people criticize him and it gets under their, under their skin? You know? Some strong parallels to the Minneapolis situation there. But anyhow, both Kellogg and the ministers were wrong. Okay? The Lord has no justification for any such work. But there's an old saying in secular history. It goes like this. It says, the victor writes the history. Okay? Now, today, you would go long and search hard before you would find a truly sympathetic history of the Third Reich of Adolf Hitler. We look at that and say, well, that's because that was despicable. But guess what? If they'd won the war, you'd find lots of books like that. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm saying? <laughs> this is the way human beings work. The victors write the history. And whoever won, nine times out of ten, it's assumed that they were right. <laughs> okay? Now, in the war, shall we say, that developed between Dr. Kellogg and the ministry, the ministry won. And they've written the history. And I'm just going to stick my neck out here and say something you know, weird and drastic. If you go reading in secondary Adventist history sources, what you're going to find is a portrayal of this time period in which Dr. Kellogg is here, the ministry is here, they're kind of bumping up against each other, there was contention, and Dr. Kellogg veered off into apostasy. That's the portrayal you're going to find. And I'm going to show you reasons that I believe that's wrong. That's an inaccurate portrayal. That's a false history. The real history it's like this. That's a serious accusation. But let me bear it out, and you'll understand. And for those of you listening to this on audio verse, 
Both sides veered off. Okay. <laughs> okay. My apologies. There are some things you can only do, you know, with visuals. Um, <clears throat> okay. Um, going on. Had the church done in different localities the work given them by God, had they followed the example left them by Christ, there would now be centers all through America. Plants would be established in many places. There would not be a great showing in Chicago alone. The work would be multiplied in many places with the full cooperation of the institutions established in Battle Creek. The past should be subject for keen regret. The Lord would now have the medical missionary work recognized as the helping hand of God. What does that mean? It means that it hadn't been recognized as the helping hand of God, right? He wants it to be recognized. This is 1898. She's saying, would somebody please recognize the medical missionary work as the helping hand of God? Okay? But this work has been carried too heavily in one place. When plans should have been made in many places. The Lord has given Dr. Kellogg his work. It is a fact that our ministers are very slow to become health reformers, notwithstanding all the light which the Lord has given upon this subject. This has caused Dr. Kellogg to lose confidence in them. Was that his fault? Yes. <laughs> it's hard to say that, isn't it? You know? But when he lost confidence and began doing things that were wrong, you know, that's his fault. Was it his fault that the ministers were slow at becoming health reformers? No. That's their fault. Speaking of the ministers still, their tardy work in health reform has created in Dr. Kellogg a spirit of criticism. And he has borne down on them in an unsparing manner, which the Lord does not sanction. That's his fault, right? He has belittled the gospel ministry, and in his regard and ideas has placed the medical missionary work above the ministry. I have seen that in the censuring of ministers, remarks have been made which have not been to the honor and glory of God. Okay, that's 1898. Keep following the, the chronology as we work our way through this. Still, same year, later in the year, <coughs> 1898. Those who refused the warnings of God followed a course of action which brought its sure result. These influences have sometimes made the work of Dr. Kellogg doubly as hard as it should have been. They have led him to stand apart to some degree from the ministry. I desire to present matters as they are presented to me. Such a spirit of criticism and fault-finding has done the work Satan designed should be done. Dr. Kellogg has taken, excuse me, has been led to take the course he deemed it his duty to take. He is not connected with those who were not in sympathy with the work he knew to be of God. That's a tough spot to be in. <coughs> I know that what I'm doing is God's work. And I know that you're doing everything you possibly can to follow it up for me. And you're still my brother. You're still my sister. <laughs> that's hard. <laughs> that's hard. You know? Do you want to put up with somebody who keeps you know, giving you the gears? You know? Dr. Kellogg failed the test. Okay? But I think he deserves a little bit of sympathy. Going on. Our people have not all appreciated as they should the man through whom God has worked and with whom he has cooperated upon the subject of health reform. They have not reasoned from cause to effect 
to understand how great was the blessing of the sanitarium at Battle Creek under the management of Dr. Kellogg and his faithful associates. Through this work, the truths of the Third Angel's message have entered where it would otherwise have been very difficult for them to find entrance. But the perceptions of our people have been blinded. Two years later, this was written to Elder Irwin, General Conference President. Seek to save Dr. Kellogg from himself. He is not heeding the counsel. He should heed. He is not satisfied because the Lord has signified that the missionary work does not consist alone in the slum work in Chicago. That work, thought to be the great and important thing to be done, is a very defective and expensive work. Was it wrong categorically? No. Was it being carried forward properly by Kellogg? No. Okay? On January 12, that, that was January 1, 1900, uh, 12 days later, she wrote this. God forbid that the purposes Dr. Kellogg has in mind should be carried out. Our work is not to be a divided work. What were the purposes he had in mind? Separate the medical work from the ministerial work. An undenominational medical missionary work. Okay? Our work is not to be a divided work. Check this out. When the gospel ministers and the medical missionary workers are not united, there is placed on our churches the worst evil that can be placed there. Anybody a grammarian? What kind of word is worst? Yes! We've got a grammarian in the crowd. It's a superlative. That means it's as far as you can go. Now, if you're going to go further than the worst, you have to come up with something like the worsterist. <laughs> Please don't do that. <laughs> okay? Uh, it's the worst evil. You know, I have scratched my head over that for 30 years. I only think now that I maybe begin to understand. What, no, how could that be? What's the worst evil? What's up with that? And here's my best guess at this point. The worst evil that comes on the churches when those two are separated is thinking that they're doing God's work. <laughs> when they're not. Thinking they're doing something that will result in finishing God's work and taking this gospel to all the world. When they're not thinking that they're living somewhere other than fantasy land. Fantasy land, when it comes to the gospel, I think is the worst evil. The Lord has sent you warnings, this is written to Kellogg now, <clears throat> but you have not heeded them. Of the work you have taken up in Chicago, the Lord inquires, John, who hath required this at your hands? You have establishments in America of your own ambitious creating. As you belong to the Seventh-day Adventist people, God has given you another work to do. You have not been called to do this work. Okay, he's going off track. You can see that. Why? Well, he was proud. He was ambitious. He was impatient. Got sick and tired of all these... Says, <laughs> forget them. I'll just do it myself. In 1900... Dr. Kellogg's organizations employed twice as many people as the rest of the denomination worldwide. Twice as many people as the church, the whole church. 
you can see how he could easily think, I don't really need them. They're not helping. <laughs> there aren't that many of them, anyhow. <laughs> I'll do it myself. Carrying on. The deceptive power of the enemy has led you to leave God's banner trailing in the dust while Dr. Kellogg has committed himself as working undenominationally in a work which has taken the money from a people who are decidedly a denominational people. Isaiah 58 does not sustain you in the kind of work you are doing and in expanding God's revenue on that class of people found in the slums. There we obtain the least results for labor put forth. The work has been hindered. The cause of God should have, should have a different showing, far different. And who is to blame for this hindrance? You give heed to men not of our faith. You delight to show what you have done, and by free use of money that was not yours to handle in a way that God has not appointed. God never set you to engage in gathering means and in doing the work the Salvation Army are doing. Let them work in that line, and you attend to your appointed work. <coughs> Dr. Kellogg, reacting against unjust treatment, was spinning off in his own direction. Okay? 1903. God does not endorse the efforts put forth by different ones to make the work of Dr. Kellogg as hard as possible in order to build themselves up. She never names names. She's so sweet. <laughs> Who's she talking about? I can't tell you. I can guess, but I can't tell you because she never names names. But somebody here, different ones, is making the work of Dr. Kellogg as hard as possible in an effort to build themselves up. It sounds like a human being, doesn't it? Okay. God gave the light on health reform, and those who rejected it rejected God. One and another who know better knew better, said that it all came from Dr. Kellogg and they made war upon him. This had a bad influence on the doctor. He put on the coat of irritation and retaliation. God did not want him to stand in a position of warfare and he does not want you to stand there. Look at that source. <laughs> General Conference Bulletin. This is a sermon at the General Conference in 1903. She's defending Dr. Kellogg. 1903, he'd already written the Living Temple. Sanitarium burned down a year and four months before this. Sanitar or the, the Living Temple had been written a year before this. And she's still trying to hang on to this guy. Don't you just love her, her tenacity? He was her son. <laughs> you know? How can I give him up? And it was those who were about to crucify him, so to speak, on the cross of pantheism that had largely caused it. Don't get me wrong. She's not defending pantheism. She's not defending Kellogg in any area where he was wrong. <laughs> she was defending him where he was right. And she reiterated, he is the Lord's physician. Okay. <clears throat> well... It's the victor who writes the history books. The Haskell home burned down in the early morning of February 9, 1909. Three children died. Unfortunately, this sad event led to a new round of accusations. Dr. Kellogg gave a statement to the Battle Creek Inquirer, local newspaper. 
Quotes, the Haskell home never was owned or controlled by the Seventh-day Adventists or any other church organization. The money with which the home was built was given to me personally by Mrs. Carolyn Haskell. The leaders of the Seventh-day Adventist denomination were never much in sympathy with the Haskell home enterprise, nor for that matter with any other line of philanthropic work. Dr. Kellogg could on occasion lie. This whole top half, that's a lie. I wish I were as sure that the bottom half was a lie. It's at least put in its least favorable setting. Okay? Well, <clears throat> that prompted A.G. Daniels, General Conference President, to try and set the record straight. Speaking of Kellogg's article or letter to the newspaper, he says, this representation is not borne out by the original records and accounting which were kept by the founders and managers of the Haskell home. In view of the wide difference between Dr. Kellogg's statements and the original records signed by himself as chairman, I consider it only fair to all parties to give the facts in this case as we find them recorded in the documents, blah, 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 blah. And he goes on for a page and a half providing evidence that, yeah, Dr. Kellogg was lying. That's nice. Now, now the record is straight. The fallout. In the early 1900s, there were more than 50 benevolent institutions operated by Seventh-day Adventists in the United States. City missions, orphanages, uh, charity clinics, uh, all this stuff was going on. Following Dr. Kellogg's loss of church membership over pantheism and other issues in 1907 and the Haskell Home Fire in 1909, this number declined rapidly. Most of them were gone within five to 10 years. The last of them died out by the early 1930s. To a large degree, the denomination had washed its hands of the benevolent work. Now, there are exceptions. You know, the, 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 the ladies at the local Dorcas, that's good. ADRA does a lot of good things, but you know, I have some things I, I could wish were different with ADRA because of so much funding from government agencies, ADRA's really almost split the missionary work or the, the benevolent work from the ministry again, you know, because they, they're not allowed in most cases to actively present doctrine or anything like that. They're there as a benevolent work. So, you know, I've got some friends who work for ADRA. It's, you know, it's a good operation. Could be better. <laughs> Okay? But to a, a large degree, we kind of washed our hands. We're going to close out now with a string of, of spirit prophecy quotations just to fill out this picture and hopefully help you understand that we threw the baby out with the bathwater. <laughs> you know? Pantheism had to go, but we threw out everything that Dr. Kellogg stood for and loved along the way. This is an early statement from Ellen White, <clears throat> but it's helpful to me because I think exactly like the person she's trying to help. <laughs> you may say you have been taken in and have bestowed your means upon those unworthy of your charity and therefore have become discouraged in trying to help the needy. I present Jesus before you. He came to save fallen man, to bring salvation to his own nation, but they would not accept him. 
Though your efforts for good have been unsuccessful 99 times and you received only insult, reproach, and hate, yet if the 100th time proves a success and one soul is saved, oh, what a victory is achieved. You know, I'm a big fan of, of high profit margins, you know, high return on investment. If I can, you know, accomplish something great by helping somebody out with $50, I, I, I feel a lot better than if I see my $50 go down the rat hole. But you know, I, I think she's saying I should have a, a, a greater toleration <laughs> for, for a, a somewhat lower return of investment than I would naturally like to see. Does that make sense? You know? Now trust me, she's not in favor of throwing money away either. That was one of the things that she had problems with Kellogg. But, but just you know, keep that in mind as a kind of a general concept. <clears throat> this is written to a conference president. There is enough wealth in your conference to carry forward this work successfully. And shall the Prince of Darkness be left in undisputed possession of our great cities because it costs something to sustain missions? Let those who would follow Christ fully come up to the work, even if it be over the heads of ministers and president. Those who in such a work as this will say, I pray thee, have me excused, should beware, lest they receive their discharge for time and eternity. A couple of things to track on this here. even if it be over the head of ministers and president. Ellen White did not lightly say things like that. She knew what church organization had cost. She did not lightly undercut the authority of the church structure. I can only think of one other place where she did. And interestingly enough, that statement says something along the lines of, if the ministers will not receive it, I want to go to the people. Perhaps they will accept the light. And it was Minneapolis. Why, in these two occasions, does she justify or, or rationalize or, or, or bring into the picture at all that kind of insubordination, <laughs> if you want to call it that? Pardon me? It's a higher authority. Because those two things are things that God has absolutely commanded. <laughs> and they're both calculated to finish God's work. They're tracking parallel. You'll see that more in our next session. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's see. <clears throat> Going on. In the 58th chapter of Isaiah, the work that the people of God are to do in Christ's lines is clearly set forth. They are to break every yoke. They are to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to bring the poor that are cast out into their homes, to draw out their souls to the hungry and to satisfy the afflicted soul. If they carry out the principles of the law of God in acts of mercy and love, they will represent the character of God to the world and receive the richest blessings of heaven. Represent the character of God. What a wonderful concept. I thought I could do that by preaching the 2300 days. Well, I can, in one sense. I can do it with a startlingly clearer level of, or a startlingly higher level of clarity by doing it with something that people can immediately recognize as, as loving and kind, okay? Hang on to that represent the character of God concept. That will come back to haunt us. <laughs> 
again and again the Lord has pointed out the work which the church in Battle Creek and those all through America are to do. They are to reach a much higher standard in spiritual advancement than they have yet reached. They are to awake out of sleep and go without the camp working for souls that are ready to perish. The medical missionary workers are doing the long neglected work which God gave the church to the church in Battle Creek. They are giving the last call to the supper which he has prepared. Now, back up one. Uh, 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 back up two. There we go. Um, recognize this line, I pray thee have me excused. Remember what parable that comes from? That's the invitation to the supper. Remember the one guy bought some land, one guy bought some oxen, the other guy bought a wife, <laughs> whatever, you know, okay. <laughs> um, and, and, and they refused the invitation to the supper. He said, you know, if you, if, if you don't want to go to the supper, be careful. <laughs> you may be getting your discharge for time and for eternity, okay. So now we go back up to the one we hear. This is, this is a recurring theme, this last call to supper. That's what medical missionary work is. It's the last call to the supper. It's the last invitation to the world. It's the method of revealing the character of God. It's what we're waiting for. It's what gets step three, or stage three, off the, off the ground, okay? This is all tied together. The last call of the supper, which he has prepared. That's what the medical missionaries and workers were doing. What's the date? That's 1898, okay? This is the time period where she was just barely starting to have some concerns with, with Kellogg's work, okay? The church wasn't doing it, so the medical missionaries picked it up. In order to be carried forward to write, the medical missionary work needs talent. It needs strong, willing hands and wise, discriminating management. But can this be? While well, those in responsible places, presidents of conferences and ministers, bar the way? The Lord says to the presidents of conferences and to other influential brethren, remove the stumbling blocks that have been placed before the people. Come on, guys. Get your act together. <laughs> You're shutting down. You're making it hard to do what we need to do. Don't do that. Don't do that. Come on, people. We can do better. Please read the invitation to the supper and the last call to be made. Study what is being done to meet the command of Jesus. I cannot understand why such indifference is manifested, why you should stand afar off and criticize and draw away. Who are they criticizing? Dr. Kellogg and the medical missionary workers, okay? The gospel net is to be cast into the sea, and it draws both good and bad. But because this is so, shall men and women ignore the efforts made to save those... This is a very convoluted sentence, but let's try it again. But because this is so, shall men and women ignore the efforts made to save those who will believe and who will unite in reaching that class of whom Christ spoke in his rebuke to the Pharisees, sinners and harlots, he said, go into the kingdom of God before you. Brethren, be careful, very careful. There is a work being done to the medical missionaries which answers to the description given in Matthew 25, 48 to 51. The Lord is working to reach the most depraved. Many people will know what it means to be drawn to Christ but will not have moral courage to war against appetite and passions. But the workers must not be discouraged at this. Is it only those rescued from the lowest depths that backslide? She's saying, okay, if you're in the mission, medical missionary work and you're helping people, you know, you're going you're gonna to draw in the good and the bad in the net, you know? And some of them are not going to come through. Some of them you're going to invest your heart and your life and your money in, and they're going to disappoint you. And they're going to fall back. They know what it is to be drawn by Christ, but they're not to persevere. That's going to happen. But don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. Now we go back up to the top. 
See my little editing right there? That's my work. If you grab, this is taken from volume 8 of the testimonies. If you pulled out your volume 8, you would not see 2, you would see by. And it doesn't have any brackets, it doesn't have anything crossed out. It just says, there is a work being done by the medical missionaries, which answers blah, blah, blah. Okay? That's a typo. How do I know that's a typo? Because this same passage was printed twice before it showed up in volume 8. Special Testimony Series A, number 11, page 27, and Special Testimony of the Brethren in Battle Creek, page 7. Both published before 8T, and both say to, rather than by. Now that's only important if you know what Matthew 25, 48 to 51 says. And nobody ever looks it up, so nobody ever catches, <laughs> ever catches the typo. 25, 48 to 51 is the part of the parable. This is the parable where the, the, the master leaves the, the servants and he goes to the far kingdom, you know, far land to get his kingdom. 48 to 51 is the servant who says, my Lord delays his coming and begins to beat his, his, his fellow servants. That was being done to the medical missionary workers, not by, to. They were being beaten by the ministry. Okay, going on. There are those, oh, oh, well, let's see. Let's finish up here real fast. Okay, last question down here. Is it only those rescued from the lowest depths that backslide? And she answers her own question. There are those in the ministry who have had light and a knowledge of the truth who will not be overcomers. They do not restrict their appetites and passions or deny themselves for Christ's sake. Many poor outcasts, even publicans and sinners, will grasp the hope set before them in the gospel and will go into the kingdom of heaven before the ones who have had great opportunities and great light but who have walked in darkness. In the last great day, many will say, Lord, Lord, open unto us, but the door will be shut and their knock will be in vain. We should feel deeply over these things, for they are true. We should have a high estimate of truth and of the value of souls. Time is short and there is a great work to be done. If you feel no interest in the work that is going forward, if you will not engage, excuse me, encourage medical missionary work in the churches, it will be done without your consent. For it is the work of God and it must be done. My brethren and sisters, take your position on the Lord's side and be earnest, active, courageous co-workers with Christ, laboring with Him to seek and save the lost. Full disclosure. See the italics? I put that in, okay? <laughs> I did put that one in. Okay. 1903. The Lord signified His displeasure by permitting the principal buildings of these institutions to be destroyed by fire. Notwithstanding the plain evidence in the Lord's providence in these destructive fires, some among us have not hesitated to make light of the statement that these buildings were burned because men had been swaying things in directions which the Lord could not approve. Okay, what are we talking about? Obviously, Battle Creek, okay? Top picture is the sanitarium, February, what was it, February 18, 1902. Bottom picture is Review and Herald, December 30, 1902. Why were they burnt? Now, sometimes... You ask that question, you know, why were there fires in Battle Creek? And some people will say, pantheism! That's possibly true of the bottom picture. It's true, the Review and Herald had the printing plates for Living Temple sitting on the floor, ready to go on the press the next day, the night that that burned down. But it's not true of the sanitarium. Living Temple was written to replace that building. Pantheism was not a, an issue in anybody's books prior to that. 
So why did the sand burn down? Well, hmm. Men have been departing from right principles for the promulgation of which these institutions, those two right there, were established. They have failed of doing the very work that God ordained should be done to prepare a people to build the old waste places and to stand in the breach as represented in the 58th chapter of Isaiah. In this scripture, the work we are to do is clearly defined as being medical missionary work. This work is to be done in all places, not just Chicago. Kellogg had gotten burned out listening to the whining and sniping and the nitpicking of whatever subset of the ministers this was. I don't know who. Oh, I never names them. Such a sweet lady. Whoever they were, they got under his skin. He got mad. He said, forget them. I will do more gospel work than they've ever dreamed of. And he made Chicago bigger and bigger and bigger. By the time you know, it wrapped up, he had like five or six big buildings, huge buildings down there. He was doing it in a way that was not authorized by Isaiah 58, was not authorized by the Lord. And he, he could, you know, if, if you, if you want to, let's declare a war on poverty, so I'm going to stand on a street corner and hand out $100 bills. Guess what? I'm not going to be out of business for a long time. You know, I, I can keep handing out $100 bills, just lickety-split, and more and more people are going to show up with $100 bills. You know, it's not doing a thing for the gospel. It's burning up a whale of a lot of money. But you can sure make a big program out of it. <laughs> That's what Kellogg was doing, okay? That was, that was his problem. And he wasn't listening. He was not listening. It was the failure. They have failed of doing the very work God ordained should be done. Isaiah 58, medical missionary work. It was the failure of medical missionary work on the part of Kellogg and on the part of the General Conference. Compounded by of the willingness to print Living Temple as a private job that, that resulted in those fires. <clears throat> I have been instructed to refer our people to the 58th chapter of Isaiah. Read this chapter carefully and understand the kind of ministry that will bring life into the churches. Back again. You ever hear of anybody who wants to, you know, oh, there's a little church out here and it's dying. We need to reinvigorate it. Let's buy a drum set. <laughs> Hot tip on the screen, people, <laughs> okay? This is the kind of ministry that will bring life into the churches. When you meet suffering souls who need help, give it them. When you find those who are hungry, feed them. In doing this, you will be working in lines of Christ's ministry. The Master's holy work was a benevolent work. Remember what benevolent work was? Benevolent work. Let our people everywhere be encouraged to have a part in it. After telling the story of the Good Samaritan, she says, Here the conditions of eternal life are plainly stated by our Savior in the most simple manner. The man who was wounded and robbed represents those who are subjects of our interest, sympathy, and charity. If we neglect the cases of the needy and unfortunate who are brought, excuse me, that are brought under our notice, no matter who they may be, we have no assurance of eternal life, for we do not answer the claims that God has upon us. That particular statement got my attention. <laughs> Would you like some assurance of eternal life? 
didn't take medical missionary work seriously. And it doesn't have to be ventricular transplants. They're, they're good. I'm not you know, picking on any heart surgeons here. <laughs> okay, you know, nothing wrong with that. But that's not the tool the Lord gave most of us to use for medical missionary work. Some of us can do that. Praise the Lord. If I ever need one of them, I hope I have somebody around that can do it. <laughs> okay? But you know what? If in the meantime I'm just hungry, I hope there's somebody with a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. <laughs> it doesn't have to be complicated. <laughs> Okay, um, I read that. Yes, I read that. Okay. If we don't do that, we have no claims and we have no assurance of eternal life. Okay. <clears throat> Those who wait for the bridegroom's coming are to say to the people, Behold your God. The last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is a revelation of his character of love. Remember we talked about representing the character of Christ? Medical missionary work was to represent the character of Christ. The last warning message to the world is a representation, a manifestation. How's Is a revelation. There we go. I had Asian on the end. Okay, is a revelation of God's character of love. The children of God are to manifest His glory in their own life and character. They are to reveal what the grace of God has done for them. When we get our act together, we will be living such kind, compassionate, happy lives that people will look at us and they'll say, I don't get it. You guys are all different. And in a way that is not blasphemous, we will be able to say, Behold your God. We are representing the God whom we serve. We are like Him. I almost never say that in so many words, I don't suppose. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not preaching some weird form of, you know, holy flesh, okay? <laughs> but we will be demonstrating it in such tangible, active, visible ways that the appeal of the gospel can become very simple. It'll be... I can show you how to live like Jesus. It's fun. <laughs> it's the right way to live. Do you want to live like Jesus? That's going to have more appeal than a sermon on the state of the dead. <laughs> okay? The children of God are to manifest His glory in their own life and character. They are to reveal what the grace of God has done for them. And then one last statement to leave you depressed. The sufferings of every man are the sufferings of God's child. And those who reach out no helping hand to their perishing fellow beings provoke his righteous anger. This is the wrath of the Lamb. Uh, that's not on my to-do list. I am not interested in finding out by personal reception what the wrath of the Lamb is. When I ran, I, I, was, I was blessed immeasurably by the acquirement of someone else's life work. 28 boxes full of notebooks 
where she had painstakingly over a 30-year time period mapped all this out. I, I have just, I have stolen this entire presentation, <laughs> okay, out of this huge pile of notebooks that landed on my lap, so to speak, okay? 28 boxes with like about 20 notebooks in every one. And this lady had done the research and it's just incredible the depth that she's gone to. I just barely summarized a little bit here. When I, when I, when I landed in my lap and I started looking at it, these last few statements, they left me feeling like a penny waiting for change as the saying goes. I have not lived this way. I didn't know I was supposed to. <laughs> I didn't know I was supposed to. I think that's a trace of the very worst evil coming upon the churches when the medical missionary work is separated from the ministerial work. My best defense at the moment is I'm in the process of changing that in my life. <laughs> it needs to change. The medical missionary work must be done. And if I don't do it, it will be done without my encouragement and support. And the same, I suspect, is true for you. And that ends session two. Are you appropriately depressed? Was this time we're supposed to end? Am I on target? I'm on That's so incredibly wonderful. Okay. Let's have a word of prayer to dismiss our morning's activities. Father, <coughs> we have not done as you've asked. And that is worrisome. And we don't even know how best and how wisely to do as you have asked, because obviously there's a right and a wrong way to do this, this medical ministry work. There's a right and a wrong way to do benevolent work. We want to understand it, Lord. We want to get it right. I pray you'd help us. I thank you for this occasion, and I thank you for these folks. And I pray that things that have been said all that is good and helpful, I pray you would fix it in their memory. And every foolish thing that I've said, I pray that you would help them to forget it. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.